right, uh, good to be together this morning. Good to see you. Good to be in this space. Uh, I was doing a little research, a uh, recent Pew Research Center survey revealed that 21% of Presbyterians are in the sanctuary by the time the announcements are made. No, it's true. It's true. Uh, but we can bend that curve a little bit. Uh, if you uh, didn't, if you weren't here for the announcements, didn't hear Gladys reminding us about the books that are available uh, in the narthex or the lobby on the way out, I encourage you to grab one of those. Uh, the title and the image on the front may uh, lead one to believe that they are about climate change. Uh, that's not the case. They're not about penguins necessarily either. It's an allegory about change, uh, something we've been talking about a little bit lately, and uh, we'll talk about a little bit more in the future. Uh, change. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Only one. Their hands are already in the air. How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change the light bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? At least 15. One to change the light bulb, three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad and fried chicken. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, three, one to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old one was. And then finally, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? What's change? Uh, but we're gonna see what we can do to bend that too. Uh, let's uh, pray because we need to. Help us, God, to be attentive to your word more than my words, to your truth, to your grace, to your presence, to your power, to your goodness, to your will, and to your way. You are our all in all. That's not just songs. Uh, we mean that with our minds as well as our hearts. We're grateful for the abundance of your blessing, for your kindness, for your coming to us in Jesus, and for the parts of your word that reflect and convey and instruct and guide. Help us as together we look and read and listen. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, another thing about prayer. If you take the word Presbyterian, and you reshuffle all of the letters, they can spell using just those letters and no more letters, best in prayer. Isn't that kind of cool? Try it sometime. I'll tell you a little bit more about that next week. Uh, so we're back to uh, our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we talked and began last week uh, saying that one of the benefits of reading through uh, a book of the Bible uh, as it was written, as it was intended to be read, straight through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, passage by passage, is that you get the benefit of seeing context and really understanding uh, things in context, the nuances, uh, the bits and pieces of history, the context in ways that we cannot and do not when we read something out of 
context, when we just take it uh, and set it aside and put it under a microscope and don't really understand where it came from, what was going on, what the background was, what the culture was like. Another benefit we uh, said benefit last week is that in reading a passage and studying a book uh, straight through as it was written and intended to be read, we aren't allowed to skip over the uncomfortable parts. And so we're faced to confront, forced to confront the parts of scripture that may be hard. And that's what we did last week, and that's what we get to do again this week in our study of the Gospel of Mark, still in chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 17. Now, listen closely. This is God's word, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before Jesus. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is. And there's a variant in the uh, New Testament text in the scriptures, in the history of scriptures that adds this phrase, for those who trust in riches. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is kind of a little, this is humor on Jesus' part. It's humor. Jesus isn't very funny. Uh, the New Testament, the Gospels aren't particularly humorous. This is Jesus' best attempt at humor, all right? Uh, camel going through the eye of a needle. Ha ha, everyone would have laughed. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus said. The disciples were even more amazed, uh, verse 26, and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God, all things. Then Peter, who's always quickest to speak, speaks up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a 100 times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But, and this is Jesus' favorite sort of paradoxical formula quote saying in all of the scriptures, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Everything's upside down in the kingdom. So this is a guy who's got it together, this man whom Jesus is interacting with. He is a Silicon Valley success story. He is wealthy, there's nothing wrong with that. He's young, Matthew over in his gospel tells us that. So somehow he is 
uh, acquired a significant amount of money, wealth, assets, resources in some way as a still young man. Of course, maybe his wealth was given to him. Maybe he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Maybe he inherited it. His words later indicate that maybe he acquired things by inheritance. How he became wealthy, though, really isn't the point. The point is that he is wealthy and he is young. One doesn't see that combination very often still today in the world. And on top of that, he's a ruler. We learn over in Luke's gospel. He's a commander, a chief, a leader of some sort, a ruler, maybe in the synagogue, maybe in civil government, maybe in some other context or association. And on top of that, he's a religious man, and he may be considered even a good religious person. If we take him at his word, he's done well at keeping the religious law. He's obeyed God's commands. Good. That's all good. He may lack humility about that, but he certainly exhibits humility in other ways. He falls at Jesus' feet. He kneels before Jesus. He gets on his knees before Jesus, this young, prosperous man who's got a lot going on that's right and good and admired and successful in his life is on his knees before Jesus. And he's done what's been asked of him in almost every regard and realm and life. This young man, by every measure, has got his stuff together. He would be to us admirable, respectable, decent. Good. And yet he knows that there's something still missing in his very rich, abundant, prosperous life. There's still something missing. And maybe you, at some point, have found yourself in a similar place, position, thinking. Maybe there are things that are many things that have gone well in your life that are good, that are blessed, that are abundant. And yet you have at some point in your life thought there's gotta be something more. Maybe you're at that place now. Maybe you're in that place in some way today. There's still something missing. There's still got to be more. That's exactly the place that this man who had everything was in. Exactly how things were for him. And so he comes to Jesus. And again, we have to give him credit. He does the right thing. He goes to the right person. He seeks out the best source of wisdom and truth and reality that he knows to. And he takes advantage of that. He goes to Jesus. Did you ever play any of those games that temperature has to do with how close you are? In our family, that was always Easter egg hunting. If you're looking for an egg and uh, the parent knows where an egg is or eggs are and you're wandering around and the kid's wandering around, we would say, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, you're getting hotter, you're getting hot, you're on fire as one of our kids finds an egg. Anyone else ever do that? Yeah. This man is on fire. He is on fire because he has these questions and he's seeking and he's knocking and he's looking and he's hungering and he's getting so close. He's getting so close. He's right there now, engaged with Jesus. He had come to the right place, come to the right person, to the best person he knew. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Two sections back in Mark's gospel, some Pharisees also had come to Jesus with a question. They wanted to test Jesus. They wanted to trap Jesus. This man earnestly wants help, information, knowledge, guidance. 
answers. He's earnestly seeking. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what is eternal life? In the Gospel of John, which records Jesus speaking of eternal life, John uses this phrase, this term, eternal life, more than the other Gospel writers in recording Jesus' ministry. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they know you. He's speaking to his Father in heaven in prayer. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The gift of eternal life, one might then conclude, is not a checked box or a condition or a status or even a promise for the future as much as it is a relationship. Now this is eternal life, that they know you. Thus, eternal life, better described as an eternal kind of life, is a life lived in interactive, cooperative, and communicative relationship with God in God's present and coming kingdom. Though eternal life is never ending, its main characteristic is not longevity, but quality. In the words of Dallas Willard, it is a rich life, the fullness of which is experienced over time as a progression from confidence in and a reliance upon Jesus, leading to a desire to be his apprentice and living in and from and through the kingdom of God. The abundance of this life of apprenticeship then leads to obedience and its associated disciplined life. In turn, this leads to and is reinforced by the pervasive inner transformation of the heart and soul into Christ's likeness. That's a lot of words, but this is eternal life it begins with a relationship and then living actively in that relationship not just out there in the distant future after we die in these bodies but more so more than longevity it is quality here and this is exactly when you think about it what the man was seeking was he not he had everything in this life and for this world and yet something was missing you may have noticed, noticed in our verses that synonyms for eternal life included entering the kingdom of God and being saved. Two mark, four mark, for Jesus, those are synonymous terms. Entering the kingdom of God, being saved, eternal life. They're all there. And did you notice the seeming contradiction or the complexity of the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, what must I do to inherit? But of course, when a person inherits something, they don't do anything other than receive. Their inheriting is not about what they do, it's about what another person has done or has given to you. And yet this man asks, what must I do? He has a foot in each reality or he's covering his bases. He is accustomed to doing things, to making things happen. He may have made his money in business. He understands transactions. To get something, you have to do something or provide something or source something or make something. To get something, you have to do something, action. And yet at the same time, to inherit something, one has to do absolutely Nothing, an inheritance being a gift. And as it turns out, the man doesn't know it yet, he's right on both accounts, he's right on both fronts. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good? Jesus pushes back a little bit. No one is good except God alone. And Jesus isn't saying that he's not God, that he's not divine, that he's not the son of God, but rather he's questioning the man's fulsome or uh, flattering language and questioning what really is good and who really is good. Is that man good? Turning the question around, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. These are basically commandments five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. In the big 10, in Exodus, and Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, what Moses brought down from the mountain, the core and centerpiece of God's word to his people in the Old Testament, the heart of the law. And, and Numbers 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, 5 through 10, were those laws that dealt with people and relationships between people and their interactions. And this man said that he's kept those specific commandments since he was a boy. Imagine the citizenship column, those of us who are parents or have been parents. Imagine the citizenship column in this dude's report cards. In elementary school, E, 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 excellent. In middle school and high school, in those comments columns, is a delight to have in class, is generous with other students, is always really helpful. That's this guy. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Mark tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus didn't roll his eyes. Jesus didn't laugh. Jesus didn't question the man. Jesus, who knows everything, didn't suggest that he was arrogant or exaggerating or delusional or out of touch with reality. None of these things. But Jesus did say, there's just, there's just one thing. Just one thing. One thing you lack. And the man's response in that moment must have been, oh, good, just one thing. Good, just one thing. I've done so much, I've, I, I can do one more thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Bam. Bullseye, dagger. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Jesus always says exactly what we need to hear, though not always what we want to hear. And those five imperatives are a package. They go together. Let's say them together, together. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Go, sell, give, come, follow. And Jesus speaks these words with love, and Jesus speaks these words with hope, not in order to condemn, not in order to push the man away, not in order to judge. And yet this young man's face, which up until that moment must have reflected eagerness and curiosity and sincerity and hope, Mark tells us all of a sudden fell. It drooped. It became sorrowful. The man was appalled, the man was shocked, the man was abhorred. In all of the Gospel of Mark, Mark, of all of the people 
that Jesus says and invites to come and follow him. Of all of the people in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus invites and calls to, quote, follow him, there is only one who doesn't, as Mark records things. And it is this man who instead walks away, quote, because he had great wealth. Because he had great wealth. And now just for the record, seriously, according to the Pew Research Center, 56% of Americans are in the world's highest income group. Another 32% of Americans fit into the world's, quote, upper middle income group. That means if you take all Americans, almost 90% of us fall into what would be considered the upper middle or the highest income group in the world. Who is wealthy? The average individual income of people around the world today, the average individual income of people around the world today is 2,100 US dollars per year. Income-wise, the average American easily ranks in the top 10% of individual income for people in the world. The average Bay Area resident is probably in the three to 5% of individual income for people in the world. The average Peninsula resident may be in the top 1% of individual income for people in the world. Who has great wealth? Is Mark's account of Jesus and this man relevant to us? One would have to say absolutely. As uncomfortable as we're getting. I see some of you kind of squirming. John led us in prayer about the people from Haiti and the crisis at the Texas-Mexico border. And that's been all over the news this past week with images, some inflammatory, some less so. Stories, and we've probably all read or heard on TV or on the internet or on our phones, a variety of stories and headlines and snippets and memes. The reality is that uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died in Haiti over the last 10 or 11 years from earthquakes, from famine, from storms. Many of them fled where they could flee because they had no other choice and no other resources to South America and to Central America where many of them had been for 10 years until someone got the word out on social media that maybe the border's open to a new life and a better life, to resources, to something different than utter, utter poverty where they could get a job and so they came. And instead of looking on that situation with compassion, a very complex situation, we Americans in our pews and in our homes instead choose to politicize, whether from the right or left, one side or the other. Regardless, it seems to me to be a situation of compassion where there are people who have great financial and other needs and a whole country of people who have incredible wealth. How to solve that dilemma, I don't know and won't conjecture. But it seems that this passage may speak to us as a part of that. As we know from the rest of Jesus' teaching and other parts of scripture, the problem wasn't wealth itself, though, with this man. As much as it was what wealth can do to a person, the place that wealth can end up having in a person's life. 
Jesus said elsewhere, a person cannot serve both God and mammon, mammon being the money God of their day. A person cannot simultaneously worship the one true God and also worship the money God. It doesn't work. In Jesus' words, in what we know as his Sermon on the Mount, he says, either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, with a capital M. And at just that fork in the road of his life is where this young man found himself facing this dilemma and a decision. And Mark writes, Jesus looked around. It's a fun word that shows up five times in Mark's gospel, always about Jesus, parablepo. And it's a compound word. Blepo just means to see, but para is the word from which we get periscope. And Jesus just looks around. He looks around at people's reactions. He looks into people about what they're thinking. He sees how each of us are affected. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, to inherit eternal life or to be saved. And Mark tells his readers that Jesus' disciples were amazed, which happens often in Mark's gospel. They were amazed at what Jesus said because up until that point in time and life and their world and their understanding, wealth had been associated with God's blessing. Great wealth was a sign of great blessing from God. That's how it worked. That's what they thought. And now Jesus has this new and very different message or angle on all of that and wealth. And Jesus' disciples were, quote, amazed. And so in order to reiterate this new thing that they're still sort of jaw-dropped about and looking at Jesus like, Jesus reiterates and says it again, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, astonished, some other translations at that point, and said to each other, who then can be saved? A good and reasonable question. Jesus looked at them, a little bit different blepo word, and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter speaks up, we've left everything to follow you. Himself in contrast to the man who can't and won't leave everything or anything. Peter and the other disciples didn't have much. They didn't have much to leave, not like the wealthy man, but that only demonstrated the difficulty of following Jesus when one has such great wealth. Maybe it's easier if you have less or nothing or little to give it all up and let go of it in order to follow Jesus. And to Peter, Jesus responds reassuringly, Peter, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a 100 times as much in this present age, this life here and now. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many are first will be last, Jesus' upside-down kingdom. And what do people like you and me do with this? I'm speaking for myself at this point and preaching to myself because I struggle with this just as much or more than any of the rest of you. A couple of weeks ago, Jesus was talking about denying himself and taking up his cross. Last week, we saw and read Jesus talking about the difficult matter of divorce. This week, it's money. Next week, I'm gonna ask you to all bring your income tax returns, and we're gonna go through those one by one. The week after that, we'll talk about sex, and the week after that, we'll talk about politics. Not really on any of those. 
But we can set aside the illusion that Jesus' message is fluffy and soft and easy. When in reality, he calls us to this adventure of discipleship that's not always easy, sometimes very difficult. And yet it is life with a capital L. It is good, it is true, it is the way. If you're looking for an easy road in the mirage of country club Christianity, you're not gonna find it here because we're not gonna find it in the scriptures and in the gospel. But what, are you, but what we are going to find is the highly reliable record and testimony of the most important person who ever walked the earth who also happened to be the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes a lot of what he says that we've already read in Mark and that we're reading today and that we will read still and what is still to come in Mark is hard, but it's always true and it's always good. It doesn't taste good going down a lot of the time, but it is so good for our souls and our minds and our spirits if we will wrestle with it, if we will listen. Jesus is looking around. Go, sell, give, come, follow. And over the course of church history, that was understood one way at the very beginning because they could, they did in some ways take that more literally and they did that. But as it became evident that Jesus wasn't coming back within weeks or months or years, this teaching became more difficult and it became more allegorical for the church when there's no indication anywhere in the scripture or the passage or the context that Jesus meant any of this allegorically or metaphorically. Go sell, give, come follow, and you will have treasure in heaven, which is what we all want. What is it that stands between you and eternal life? What is it that stands between me and eternal life? In the end, eternal life is not something we earn. Yes, it's true, it's something we receive. It's not something we do, it's something we're given. It does not come by works. It only comes by grace. But to receive it, we must let go of other gods and idols to which we cling and in which we trust and which we worship. And for some of us, that is great wealth. Admittedly, Jesus' words here seem almost un-American antithetical to the American dream, the American experience, the idea that one can have it all, which we've all heard since we were growing up. Meanwhile, Jesus reminds us that there's a mutuality aspect to the kingdom of God. Jesus is not only interested in separating a person from that which stands between that person and God, in this case, great wealth, but also the kingdom of God into which Jesus invites people and into which people are presumably wanting to go is a family and is a community and is even a global community in which there are people of every nation and tribe and ethnic group and gender and social class and today financial situation. What does it mean to live in this kingdom? We want eternal life. Mark and Jesus equate that with the kingdom of God we're invited to enter. And one aspect of that kingdom is that there are all kinds of people. And some of those people have great wealth and some of those people are very hungry and destitute for a variety of reasons. 
The man really sincerely believes that he himself is good. He has kept all the commandments since he was a boy. And he was probably by all relative data a good person. Is Jesus anti-money? No. Is Jesus anti-wealth? No. No. But he does speak up against those things that stand between or that we allow to exist and separate us from God. They keep us from God and from his kingdom and from the reality of that kingdom coming. The truth is, for me at least, that there's no easy way around this passage other than to prayerfully and sincerely wrestle with it. We do not do the scriptures or our faith any service by discounting or ignoring or explaining away. In the ninth century, someone noted, well, if you take the word camel and just change one letter that maybe a scribe accidentally oopsed, then it really is uh, the word, the Greek word for rope. And so Jesus must have been holding up a needle and he meant this fine rope and it really can't go through. Unless you try really hard, you can get that little rope through the eye of the needle. That's just a human attempt to justify ourselves and to eliminate the hardship of Jesus' teaching. In the words of author, seminary professor, and missiologist Daryl Gruder, partly quoting another great missiologist from the 20th century, David Bosch, through the ages, Christians have usually found ways around the clear meaning of the Sermon on the Mount and other scripture. We can thus read the history of Christian theology as the, as the story of our various ways of reducing the gospel, especially in its particularity and specificity, to make it more compatible to our world and more palatable for ourselves. I'll read that last bit again. We can thus read the history of Christian theology as the story of our various ways of reducing the gospel, especially in its particularity and specificity, to make it more compatible in our world and more palatable for ourselves. if this message does not take our breath away, like it did Jesus' disciples, like it did Peter, if it doesn't take our breath away, if we are not shocked, appalled, grieved, and or amazed, as was the young ruler, we have either not yet heard it or we have heard it so often that we do not really hear it anymore. What are the things that can keep a person from God and from following Jesus and from robust faith? Tim Keller said that if Jesus is who he said he is, then you have to center your whole life on him. And if he's not who he said he is, then he is someone to hate or run away from, but no other response makes any sense. Either he is God or he isn't, so he's absolutely crazy or infinitely, infinitely wonderful. The modern world, however, is filled with people who say they believe in Jesus. They say they understand who he is, but it hasn't revolutionized their lives. There has been no crisis, no lasting change. The only way to explain this is that, contrary to what they claim, they haven't really grasped the meaning that he is God with us. My comfort in this passage, sort of my only comfort, 
is that Jesus looks at the man with love. Jesus looks into the man with love. Not with judgment, not with condemnation, but he looks at him and he loves him. Though Jesus' words are too difficult for that man in that way, at that time, on that day, Jesus doesn't send him away. Jesus loves him. So wherever you're at on this passage, wherever you're at with wealth, wherever I'm at with wealth, God loves us. Salvation, eternal life, entering God's kingdom are always gift, always grace, and only grace. But along with that, God generously, graciously invites us, calls to our attention those things that stand between us and him and gives us the power through his spirit and his grace to be done with those, to excise those, to remove them, to walk away from them so that we might walk into his kingdom. May this be so. Let's pray. We are people, God, of varying amounts of wealth, resources, assets, things, income. And we know we don't have to be embarrassed about that or ashamed of that or queasy about any of that. But we ask that you would help us to release all of that and all of those things to you, that you might be Lord over every aspect of our life, no more silos, no more this realm and that realm, but all together be Lord of all. Help us to grow in faith and in trust. Help us to grow in generosity and appropriate attachment and detachment. And in that, we ask that your kingdom would come in our world, in our church, in our communities, in our lives that your kingdom would come and be manifest and blossom, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.